Oh, what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we break down Mad Max one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 50, which begins with Jesse walking out to look for Max, and it ends with Max trying to put sense to it. Awfully chipper for such a dour minute. Well, it's Friday, so I mean, there's some yeah, joy there in that. that. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah, this is a very somber, yes. very thoughtful minute. Very working through your emotions. Yes. And I mean, they're man emotions, so it's they're they're more raw or something like that. <laughs> you know, those man emotions, they, all the grimacing and the brooding and the... the it's funny you say that because I don't get any of that out of <laughs> this scene. I think Mel Gibson's acting in this scene is, first of all, amazing. I think at least so far, it's his best scene. Oh, absolutely. The best acting we've seen from him. It's really good. And it's very, um, he's vulnerable. He's, he, he has a mixture of accepting love and comfort and also not accepting love and comfort. It's very nuanced mm -hmm. and it, it's very not the stereotypical masculine suppress your emotions. It's like the polar opposite of that, <laughs> of everything that you just said. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. I can make sweeping generalities and have them immediately shot down. I've It's happened all my life. <laughs> but before we start talking about all this heavy emotion, let's get to that point in the minute. Because we start off picking up Jessie where we left off yesterday of her standing out on the porch. She's looked out over the dunes, and so now she kind of steps down and starts picking her way through the... Uh, the brush and the sand to where Max is sitting. And I think we both have neighbor questions, correct? Yeah, yeah. Like okay. we, okay, so let's get this right out. We never have it confirmed whether or not Jesse and Max have neighbors. It's never shown us one way or the other because A, that house is huge. Yes, what we do know is they do not occupy the entire house. Right, they occupy a studio apartment at one end of that house on the second floor. And so either the rest of the house is empty, in which case why are they only occupying a studio apartment-sized space in that house? And if it's not wholly empty, like where are the other neighbors? Like where is everybody else in this house? It we is interesting that them. we never see them. Never see them, never hear them. Like, not and, hearing them is crazy enough. Right. And also begs the question of this this bench that's out by the water mm -hmm. with the great view and the shade. Does it belong to them? Right. Does it belong to Max and Jesse? Did they put it out there or did a neighbor put it out there? Right. Are they just commandeering it when the actual owners aren't using it? Yeah. And I mean, it's not... It's not a huge structure. I mean, it's a couple of bamboo sticks with a piece of fabric on top and a wicker bench. Yeah. And it's like, it's kind of like a double wide seat. It's not necessarily like a bench bench. Mm -hmm. But what I have to wonder, like, and this is all in universe talk. I'm not talking about like real world because yeah. in real world, you throw it out there for a couple scenes, you pick it up, bring it back. This house butts up against a nature preserve. And so if you live in that house and then like on the other side of the property line is a national park, like can you just go out there and just kind of put furniture and little semi-permanent structures up there? I don't feel like you'd necessarily be allowed to do that. 
Well, I mean, how many park rangers do you think were employed? Yeah. I so guess the whole idea... I get the idea, feeling that they probably just were doing whatever they wanted. The whole idea of a, a nature preserve and park rangers in this setting, is, when everything seems to be slowly falling apart, yeah, doesn't make a ton of sense. Yeah. I mean... I mean, okay, we're think not... about a couple years ago when the, the whole budget, the federal budget didn't pass. Yeah. The first thing that got shut down were the parks. Yeah. The first people that got sent home were the park rangers. Yeah, because it's definitely... Because it's not essential. We're, we've established that in this world, it's not like we're not in the midst of an apocalypse. We're yeah. still... Just deteriorating. Yeah, we're at the point where everything is pretty much still running. It's just some things are starting to just not necessarily be there mm -hmm. as much. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it makes sense that any park ranger that would be there is just no longer there because there's no money to pay them to be there. But even at the same time, like I feel like th the neighbor's question is important. Yeah, especially because she's walking around with no pants on. I hate to harp on this. Well... It's funny. You've been harping on it. I was harping on it so much yesterday, and in this minute when we see Max, I realized that between the two of them, they have a whole outfit. Yes. <laughs> He's wearing pants, and she's wearing a shirt. Yep. And together, their powers combined, they have an outfit. Yes. Okay, so she she climbs through the brush. Not really. There's a path, but yeah. it's pretty scraggly looking. Just natural. Right. Yeah. And she... She comes sit down sits down next to Max. She doesn't say anything. Mm -hmm. I love this. She just like doesn't say anything the entire scene, and it's perfect. I did a little bit of research on how to comfort somebody who's grieving, mm -hmm. and I think two of them she hits the nail on the head. Uh, one open line of communication. She made herself available. She made it clear that she was there to listen and that he could say whatever was on his mind to her, non-verbally. Uh, another one is listen more than you talk. And uh, she didn't talk at all. She just let him say whatever he was going to say. She didn't try to make him feel better. She didn't say anything like, oh, you know, time heals all wounds or, you know, he's no longer in pain. She didn't, she didn't do any of that. She just let him have whatever emotions he was having. Uh, some other ones that I found really interesting on how to help someone who is grieving is offer your help. Let them know that you're there if you need them. Uh, and a very interesting one that I am looking forward to the rest of the movie is to say the deceased's name. Mm -hmm. You don't want you don't want to go through the rest of the movie nobody saying Jim Goose because then to Max it just continually separates and separates and separates him from Jim Goose. Okay. And Jim Goose is always going to be a part of his, of Max's life, which feeds into another one of share memories. Mm. You want that person who is gone to still be part of your life even if it's a past part. Um, and also to check in weeks and months later, which we don't really get to see. We don't get weeks and months. No, no. The whole story ends yeah. long before that process is able to come about. Yes. So I think Jesse does a really phenomenal job of being there for Max. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because she, she shows up, she sees him, and then she just kind of sits down next to him and lets him initiate the conversation. And I think he can kind of tell from her expression that she was wondering where he went. Mm -hmm. And so he offered up. He the, answers that question. You know, he was hungry, you know, and then he holds up this sandwich, which has like a just one bite out of the corner of it, which, yeah. first of all, peanut butter and honey, 
Great combination. Yes. Very tasty. Highly yeah. recommended if you've never tried it. Yep. I grew up only ever having peanut butter and jelly. And I'm pretty sure the first time I actually Wait. had peanut butter and honey was after we were married. Okay. Let's rewind a little bit. You grew up only having peanut butter and jelly? Yep. In New England. Well, okay. I had peanut butter and jelly, peanut butter and fluff. Okay. And then peanut butter straight. Okay. Those that's, were the three combinations. That's where I was confused. I'm like, you, you grow up in New England. You grow up with Fluffernutters. Yeah. I had never had peanut butter and honey before. Until I introduced it to you. I'm trying to think of where I learned about peanut butter and honey because I don't think that I grew up having it. Right. And when you were growing up, you were watching like Road Warrior and Thunderdome. So you didn't have this scene to pull back on. No. I can't remember where I learned peanut butter and honey. You know what the great thing is, though? What? We don't need to remember because your mom is in the listeners group and she's going to put a comment on here and say exactly where she introduced you to peanut butter and honey. Yes. And you never know. Maybe it is from this movie. Who knows? Maybe. But it's very tasty. So it makes sense if he wants he a comforting hungry. food. Yes. Peanut butter and honey, because it's the perfect combination of that peanut buttery kind of saltiness. And sweet. And the sweetness of honey mashed together in a sandwich. With bread. With bread. <laughs> it just makes everything magical. It does. Bread. Oh, yeah. But Okay, so back to the Back, back to, to the, the idea that he was hungry and made a sandwich. So he was he obviously wasn't really hungry. Yeah. Otherwise there'd be more than one bite. Yes. So I think he was just looking for something normal to do. Mm -hmm. When you've been through an upheaval of your world, you want something normal. Something mundane. Yes. So the sandwich was that mundane thing for him. Also kept him busy. Yeah. He had woken up from a nightmare. So he probably felt mm, uneasy from the nightmare. You know how that like after effect. Mm. So he wanted to keep his hands busy. Makes perfect sense. Do you think that the peanut butter and honey was significant? That's hard to say because we don't get a whole lot of peanut butter and honey content earlier in the movie. It's it's not a thing that's brought up a lot. I think this is probably the first instance of it being mentioned Yes. in the dialogue. Yes, yes it is. But I would like to think that it is significant in some way just because of because of the situation we're going through. Yeah. The loss of a friend. And like I said, I think he's falling into the depression stage of grief mm -hmm. where he's getting really introverted about the whole situation. So if there's something that would remind him of Goose and if it's like a favorite kind of sandwich, then, you know, that's something. That's exactly the sense that I got was that this was a favorite sandwich of Goose's. Because mm. we know that Goose is a big fan of eating. Yes. <laughs> like he's not as big of a fan of eating as like brad pitt in every movie he's ever been in but at the same time <laughs> when we see goose like half the time he was in a restaurant yes. of some kind a club or a diner yep. so jesse still remains quiet and this moment i think is my favorite moment mm -hmm. of the minute she just puts his hand on his face and kind of guides his face towards hers mm -hmm. so that they can make eye contact and they, yep and they make eye contact and he pulls away mm -hmm. gently but he pulls away yeah i don't think he's ready and yeah it says a lot yet. to me that non-verbally, this movie loves its non-verbal communication. Mm -hmm. She is telling him that she loves him and that she is here. And he, in turn, is telling her that he's not ready. Yeah. But he doesn't shut her out. Exactly. He immediately starts talking to her about Goose. 
he's not ready to come outside of his grieving shell. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't necessarily want to shut her out completely. Yeah. And in fact, I've got the the words that he uses right here. He says that, uh, I just can't get it clear in my head, Jess. He was so full of living, you know. He ran the franchise on it. Now there's nothing. He's really struggling with this whole idea that... This character, Jim Goose, was larger than life and twice as ugly as he liked to say before he was, you know, run off the road, was such a huge staple, such a huge figure in Max's life that now that's been pulled away from him. And it's it's telling, I think, that he's willing to offer that up once he is affirmed by Jesse that she's there to listen. Like they make eye contact, she establishes I'm here. And he's not necessarily ready, like you said, to come out of that shell, but he's at least willing to share with her, you know, what's really bothering him. And I remember when we were talking about, you know, Toe Cutter spending time with the Knight Rider's coffin, and we kind of joked about that whole idea of him contemplating mortality and whatnot. Here, it's not a joke. This is Max sitting alone, staring at the ocean, contemplating mortality, you know, coming to grips with how fast it can all just disappear. And you could tell from this scene, just the way he speaks and the intonations that he uses, that it's really affecting him, that it's really hitting him where he lives. Yes, it's much more sincere than the scene on the train platform with Toe Cutter mm -hmm. that didn't really dive into grief at all. This scene dives very much into grief. Yeah. And really gives us quite a bit of insight into how Max is feeling. Mm -hmm. I find it kind of interesting that... Our two main forces in this movie are both individuals who have recently suffered loss. And one handles it one way, and one handles it a completely different way. Because as we're going to find out next week, Max takes a step back, and he focuses on what's important. Toe Cutter, if he even felt grief for the Knight Rider, which I... I'm really on the fence about whether or not Toe Cutter felt grief for the Knight Rider's death as strongly as... Max feels grief for Goose's death, but the toe cutter went out and just spread more grief. He spread more violence. Yes. Max takes a step back, takes inventory of his life, and focuses on what's more important. You know, his family. Yes. And I suppose when it comes to grieving, both methods are legitimate, except for the fact that toe cutter's method is violent and criminal. But, but parallel that to... A path that isn't violent and criminal, just experiencing grief and putting, as a reaction to that, putting more of yourself into life. Yeah, kind of like taking it's... the death of a family member and deciding that, you know, that is the push that you need to, you know, take the next step in life. Like maybe you want to do something extreme on your bucket list, like skydive, or yes. maybe you want to, you know, buy that beaten down car and fix it up type of thing. It's yes. using that grief as a push and a catalyst redirecting that energy yeah and i feel like redirecting energy is what toe cutter does whereas with max it's not so much that he's got all this pent-up energy it's that he's able to you know let someone else share it with him it's not all about what he's going through because he has a support network there that understands him i feel like toe cutter is at the top of this totem pole and no one is really his equal. Right. He has no true peers. Exactly. Where Max has many peers. Yes. And they're able to kind of support him like that. 
And it's not until the end of the movie where he loses all of his peers Mm -hmm. that he flips over to the toe cutter side of the spectrum. Yes. Mm, Like I said. Interesting. Yeah. We're slowly going to see more and more of this idea of grief and getting over grief and constructive and destructive ways of dealing with that. Yes. um, Over the course of this movie. So... Did I mention how great this scene is as far as Mel Gibson being an actor? I think you mentioned it at the first, and I just want to parrot that, that this is definitely Max's best scene so far in the movie. Yes, absolutely. His acting is just phenomenal. And you made a note before recording that there were only how many cuts in this entire minute? This whole minute. And there are only five cuts. Yes, which is unusual for this movie. Uh, Quite often there are many, many cuts. Mm Mm-hmm. In a short amount of time. I think few cuts, we get lots of long looks at people's faces. Max, Jesse, looking in their eyes. We really get to see their emotions. Yeah. And we've been focusing a lot on Max and what his emotions are. But there's a couple of seconds where we get to see Jesse's face. Yeah. And she's concerned. But... It's not a concern. I don't think it's a concern over his mental state. Mm-hmm. I think it's just a concern that she wants to be there for him. Yeah. And, and I th- she's doing her best. Yeah, because the last seven or eight seconds of this minute, we get a, a shot that is basically Jesse's face, but then Max's face in front of hers in profile. Mm-hmm. And I get the sense that Max is so segregated with his work and home life and i'm i'm bringing this up based on you know a different situation where the news was talking about the night rider and she wanted to know about the night rider and he refused to talk about it yes and i feel that there are experiences that he has in his life that he doesn't deem um necessary might be a good word for it um appropriate might also be another word for it but he doesn't deem those things fit for her consumption and so he seals them away and i feel like in this minute she recognizes that there are aspects of his life that he has not deemed necessary to share with her that she wants to be supportive and she wants to be there for him but i feel like there's just that wall that she just can't peek over because he's never allowed it yes i agree i think he certainly told her what happened but how much did he tell her yes there's the fact of goose's death But how he died and the manner of his death and who did it, Mm -hmm. how much does Max even know? Right. I mean, no, he, okay, so no, we we learn later on in the movie that Max does know that Johnny was the one that set him on fire because he gets rather direct revenge. Uh, So he does know that. How he would know that, not really sure. Um, but I doubt that Max would tell Jesse that. Yeah. That, oh yeah, Goose was burned alive. By a motorcycle gang. By a motorcycle gang that hunted him down because Goose beat him up in custody because, you know, the guy was let go after raping a woman and beating up their car. Like, it's, that's a lot of violence. To dump on someone. To dump on somebody, especially if you haven't been dumping it on them as it goes along. Yeah. If he hasn't been talking about work and the things going on all this time over the last 50 minutes. And he just dumps that on her right now. Like, this is this is one reason why it's bothering me so much. Because this is what happened. I doubt she knows any of that. Yeah. She, she probably knows that he was burned. And, I, I mean, it could very well have been 
you know, a truck accident. Yeah. They flipped over and the car caught on fire. Yeah, I mean, utes aren't necessarily the safest looking things in this movie. Not that one. I mean, I don't want to come right out and say that every ute is a death trap, but some of them are. <laughs> there's a there's a Venn diagram of death traps and utes, and there's a middle portion. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, it's 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 tricky, this one. It is. For I, sure. I want to talk about the idea that Max brings up of a franchise... What was the exact So he says, um, he, meaning Goose, was so full of living, you know, he ran the franchise on it. And I think that's a metaphor relating to the idea of, like, when you own a franchise, you own a location that is an affiliate of a larger organization. Like, you can buy a franchise in McDonald's or, you know, Jack in the Box or Wendy's or something like that. Any sorts of fast food restaurant, um... Even stuff that's maybe not necessarily a fast food restaurant. But you can buy into a franchise and you are given the ability to open a location and manage it. And you get a bunch of support from corporate to run your business. And then you kind of contribute to the overall wealth. But you also get the the direct ownership of that property. And so the idea that he ran a franchise on the idea of living. I think it really talks about or it really speaks to Goose's lust for life. Like he's the poster boy for just living a full existence. That's how I kind of interpret it. Yes, I saw it as a franchise. There's potential to open a franchise when there is a surplus of business. Mm -hmm. When there is more demand in a larger area than one restaurant can handle. Yeah. So I see that overflow as how he dealt with life. There were so, he had so much living and so much life in him that there was enough that spilled over and, you know, metaphorically could open a franchise with all of the extra life that he had. He had a certain joie de vivre that kind of spilled over and was felt by the other officers. Is that kind of what you're going at? Like he was able to... I think so, yeah. Enliven the people around him? Yes. Okay. I get that. And I like that. Yeah. That's good. Every time we saw him, he was happy, for one, Mm -hmm. and he was boisterous, and he was social. I mean, the very first time we saw him, he was in a diner, you know, telling a fabulous, gory story, you know, to everybody eating. Yeah. And you get the sense, and in other scenes too, you always get the sense that he already knows anybody who he's with, Mm -hmm. that he happens to be near you get the sense that he already knows them. Yeah. And he's he's already friends with them. Like a naturally magnetic person. Yes. Is, you know, how to describe him for sure. Yes. So, yeah, I can, I can kind of, I can understand not only has Max lost a friend in Jim Goose, but he's also lost just a fountain of energy. Yes, I think so. Um, One scene comes to mind when Goose has asked Max to come to work early and they meet up in the courtyard. Mm. And the way they interact there is one of those times where we see a lot of emotion out of Max. Yeah. Is that time when he's with Goose. Because when he's waiting, he's kind of pacing around. But as soon as Goose shows up and they're walking together in the garage. Yeah. He like comes to life a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. Yeah. So it would hit him especially hard losing Goose because Goose, I mean, we joke about this idea of like work spouses. Yes. He was absolutely his work husband. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Total BFFs. Like they would have like like necklaces with like little a, half little, a heart. little half a heart where like <laughs> one says be fra and the other says st ends. <laughs> 
put them together, say best friends. I think it's also interesting that, and I, I think most people can relate to this, that depending on who you're with, you behave differently. Mm-hmm. Different people bring out different things in you. Yeah. Like I, you know, with my coworkers, I'm kind of a, a different person than like when I'm with you. And that's natural. We have different relationships. Your qualities bounce off my qualities and vice versa differently than, you know, me and my parents or me at work or me and my sister, you know? Yeah. We're just, we're different people depending on who we're with. And that is very evident with Max. Yeah, so it's not just that he's lost a friend. Like, he's lost a part of his personality. Like, that is an aspect of himself that is now gone. Yes, Like, a little slice of his life has died alongside Goose. I think so, because nobody was quite like Goose. So he's not going to interact with anybody quite the way that he interacted with Goose. Mm -hmm. And nobody is going to bring out quite the same personality in Max that Goose did because he was so unique. Yeah. So that really explains why he's sitting there trying to put sense to it. Yes. And the worst part is, is he knows in the back of his mind that there's no sense to it because it was a senselessly violent act. Yes. And this is also the first step towards the path of Mad Max. Mm. He's lost a part of himself. Well, he's going to lose two more parts of himself. Yeah. And, and what's left and is what's not going to be nice. It's not great. I feel like we've already gotten a little snapshot of Max's personality when he doesn't have these other people around. How he behaves in that opening chase, specifically when he plays chicken with the Knight Rider and then gets right up behind him. Like, I feel like that's a little taste of how he is. Yes, it is. When he's in his full-on Mad Max persona. Because it was... Very cold. Yes, it was reckless. Very precise, almost. Yep. So, yeah, that that's going to be very interesting oh, to see interesting. that kind of come out um, a couple weeks from now, I think. Um, that kind of brings us to the end of the minute. I think so. And where it's Friday, we like to do our little Friday updates. And I realize this episode comes out April 7th, Friday, yes. April 7th, um, the entire month of March. And I'll admit, we are recording this in the middle of March. And something that we should have mentioned in the two weeks... That we have until <laughs> the end of the month. Yeah. At some point in the previous episodes, we should have really mentioned the idea of hashtag tripod, which is hashtag T-R-Y-P-O-D, which is something that the podcasting community has been putting together. The idea that there are people out there that don't listen to podcasts. You mentioned the idea of a podcast and they give you this quizzical look of, huh, what is that? Which is crazy because there are so many podcasts out there. I don't even know how to categorize like hundreds of podcasts or thousands of podcasts or tens of thousands of podcasts. I don't know how high a number I should go because it's like endless. Yeah. And new ones are cropping up every day. So the whole idea of hashtag tripod is take the podcasts that you listen to and think of the people that you know. And if there is a person that comes to mind that might like a podcast that you listen to, the idea is... You share that with them. You introduce them to the idea of listening to podcasts. And then, you know, they start listening. Maybe they find some new ones that they like on their own. And that helps support creators. Um, It also introduces people to an endless source of entertainment. Exactly. Because there are myriad genres out there covered by podcasts. I mean, everything from sports to entertainment to finance to 
home life things just endless. You know, there are even crazy people that will sit in front of a microphone and talk for half an hour at a time about a single minute of a movie. <laughs> you know? Crazy people. Crazy, crazy people. And the best thing about Hashtag Tripod is you don't have to suggest our podcast. We would really appreciate it if you did, but you don't have to. Because the whole idea is to reach out to your friends and family and just share the fun that you have with podcasts with them. So this is totally late. It's like a week behind what everyone else was doing. But just because Tripod Month is over doesn't mean you should stop. Agreed. Okay. <laughs> so with that said, our website is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash madmaxminute. Thank you for joining us for Mad Max Minute number 50. We will see you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Motorbikes and mellow men Take me to the end of the dream Hold on tight, so it's short